This morning we will begin in Psalm 25. This 25th Psalm is a Psalm of David. It is a Hebrew alphabetic acrostic about God's deliverance, his guidance, and his forgiveness. The verses begin with a letter, each with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, except for verse 22, helping the reader to memorize the passage. The only exceptions are that two Hebrew letters are missing and one letter is used twice. But this psalm reveals the beauty and the completeness of God's mercy and tells of the fullness of God's provision from A to Z. So I'll read this psalm stating the Hebrew letter at the beginning of each verse as it's presented in the Legacy Standard Version. Olive, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. Bet, O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Gimel, indeed, let none who hope in you be ashamed. Let those who deal treacherously without cause be ashamed. Dalet, make me know your ways, O Yahweh, teach me your paths. Hivalve, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are, you are the God of my salvation. In you I hope all the day. Zion, remember, O Yahweh, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Het, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindnesses, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Tet, good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Yud, may he lead the humble in justice and may he teach the humble his way. Kof, all the paths of Yahweh are loving kindness and truth to those who guard his covenant and his testimonies. Lamed, for your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Mim, who is the man who fears Yahweh? He will instruct him in the way in which he should, which he should choose. Noon, his soul will abide in goodness, and his seed will inherit the land. Shemek, the secret of Yahweh is for those who fear him, and he will make them known his covenant. Ayin, my eyes are continually toward Yahweh, for he will bring my feet out of the net or the snare. Fay, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. Sadid, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Resh. See my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Resh, see my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Sheen, keep my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you, Tav. Let integrity and uprightness guard me, for I hope in you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you the glorious one, we look to you this morning as David looked to you 
as his hope, we look to you, for you indeed are our hope. And we lift up our souls to you this morning. God, work in our midst. May your spirit indwell our midst. May you be glorified. May your word go forth with power and truth. God, convict our hearts. Conform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. God, that we would be holy as you are holy. And God, we look forward to the day in which we will be like him when we see him as he is. So, Lord, we turn this time over to you. This is your word. This is your time set apart for your glory on this Lord's day. May you be glorified and may we be conformed to your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David was a man after God's own heart. He sought with all his might to please God, to honor him, and to live for his glory. Yet David was a man that had a life filled with troubles. David knew what it meant to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. After Samuel had anointed him as the next king of Israel, at no fault of his own, he experienced tremendous persecution from King Saul, who sought to take his life. But much of David's troubles came by his own doing, certainly by his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. David repented, and God forgave him, and he remained king, yet he faced tremendous consequences. The prophet Nathan told David that basically just as you killed Uriah with a sword, and I quote, the sword shall never depart from your house. The Lord also said to David, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house. And that's precisely what happened. The first consequence is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. David experienced many evils as a result of his sin. David's son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Two years later, their brother, Absalom, killed Amnon in revenge. This angered David, and Absalom fled from David to Geshur. As a result, Absalom later conspired against David, his own father, when he stole the hearts of the people and promoted himself as king of Israel instead of his father, the anointed one of God. So David had to flee Jerusalem, but eventually Absalom was killed by the sword. And even after Absalom's rebellion and death, David grieved for his son. The sword indeed had come to David's house. David's sin had resulted in great troubles and sickening grief. You see, David knew all about sin, and he knew about their consequences. He knew what it meant to have enemies, enemies who sought to shame God's anointed king, 
to triumph over him, to entrap him. David's enemies sought to shame him and his God, to blaspheme the God of Israel. Now, while we do not know the exact occasion in which David writes here in Psalm 25, it is apparent that David draws a correlation between his sin and the enemies who sought to put him to shame. Nathan had said that by his sin, he had given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. In Psalm 25, David pleads with the Lord, Remember not the sins of my youth, sins that had apparently emboldened his enemies, sins that had brought challenges, fears, and troubles, that had brought the sword to David's house. For sin always has its consequences. Yet, for God's own people, these consequences are meant to accomplish God's purpose in us to humble us, to remind us of our desperate need for God, to cause us to trust in him with all our hearts. And that's precisely what we see in David, a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 25, we see the heart of David put on display. We see a man burdened by his sin and their consequences. We see a man threatened by his enemies. But more importantly, we see a man who looks to the Lord. He looks to Yahweh as his only hope in the midst of those troubles. In Psalm 25, we find structure, a parallelism, if you will. And it can be broken down this way, a Verses 1 through 3, prayer for deliverance and triumph. B, verses 4 through 7, prayer for guidance and forgiveness. And then C, verses 8 through 10, assurance of guidance. But C, but not C, but again, B goes back to B. Verse 11 correlates with verses 4 through 7. Again, a prayer for forgiveness. And verses 12 through 14 correlates with verses 8 through 10, assurance of guidance. But then at the end, in verses 15 through 22, he goes back to where he began. Prayer for deliverance and protection. And you see that parallelism within this psalm. And it has meaning. It has depth. So let's begin this morning in verses 1 through 3. David prays for protection and triumph. And that is as far as we will get this morning. But notice David begins, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. In the midst of troubles, David knew where to fix his hope. He knew in whom to trust. He knew in whom to find help. He knew where his hope came from. Later in verse 15, David declares, my eyes are continually toward Yahweh, for he will bring my feet out of the net or the snare. The Jewish pilgrims would walk up to the mountain of Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord for their festivals, to the mountain where Yahweh dwelled among the people, and they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. One such psalm is Psalm 121, where the psalmist declares, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made the heaven and the earth. Then in verses 7 and 8, the psalmist declares with such great confidence to the covenant people of God, Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from now until forever. Just as David 
Or just like David, this psalmist looked to the Lord. He looked to Yahweh. He knew where his help came from. He knew in whom to trust. And David trusted the Lord with all his heart. You see, this is the heart of those who trust him. He is a covenant God who keeps covenant with his people. And this is the heart of David. David looked to the Lord. He looked to Yahweh, the eternal self-existing creator, the one outside of space, time, and matter, the sovereign one. David knew where his hope came from, from the Lord himself. He had confidence in the God who keeps covenant with his people, the God of his salvation. You see, David's mind here is turned upward from the earthly to the heavenly, from his earthly problems, from threats, from struggles, from past sins, from guilt. And it's turned to his heavenly solution, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of heaven and earth. Out of distress, David looks up with his very soul to the Lord of glory. Spurgeon wrote, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, The Prince of Preachers wrote, It is the mark of a true saint that his sorrows remind him of his sins, and his sorrow for sin drives him to his God. May our past sins and their consequences drive each of us to the Lord of glory. That's the intent. You see, this is the testimony of God's covenant people and the testimony of David in this psalm. He is driven by his distresses to the sovereign one, to Yahweh, to the transcendent creator who is above and beyond all creation, who is greater than any sin that you and I have committed, who is greater than any guilt that we carry, who is greater than any enemy that we might face, who is victorious over sin, death, and the grave. This is the God of David. This is the covenant God. And this is the God that you and I worship and serve this morning. David continues to pray for protection from his enemies in verse 2. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. David addresses the covenant God of Israel in verse 1. And here he addresses him as God or El, the strong one, the mighty God. He prays, oh my God, the mighty one in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt or triumph over me. He literally, literally prays, do not let me be put to shame. In other words, here's the idea, by the way. In other words, do not let it appear that I'm trusting a God unable to defend me, unable to defeat the enemies of his covenant people, and specifically here to defeat David's enemies, the enemies of God's anointed king. For not only was the reputation of David at stake as God's servant king, but the reputation of God, the God of Israel, was at stake. I remind you, David said, or Nathan said, excuse me, that David had given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. But David is saying here, never let it be said that hope in God is in vain. Let no one shame God's people, giving the appearance that they're trusting an impotent God, a God who cannot deliver A God who cannot guide his people, a God who cannot save, may it never be. 
This is David's prayer. This is the heart of David. His hope here is in the mighty one, the eternal, self-existing, transcendent Lord, the Lord of all creation. David continues in verse 3, Indeed, let none who hope in you be ashamed. Let those who dealt treacherously without cause be ashamed. You see, those who hope or wait on the Lord are those who expect his favor. They expect him to keep his promises. And they wait patiently for this victory, no matter how long it takes, because their trust is in him. David prays, let none who hope in you be put to shame. In other words, let it become apparent that your covenant people are trusting El, the strong one, the mighty one, the God of Israel, who is mighty to protect, mighty to lead his people, mighty to save, a victorious God. That's the God we serve, who accomplishes his purpose every single time. The Lord, through Isaiah, gives us beautiful a beautiful promise in Isaiah 40. That relates to this. He writes this. They, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up or climb with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the promise of God to those who in faith wait upon the Lord. Who hope in the mighty one. The sovereign one. The covenant God. But notice verse 3b. Let those who deal treacherously without cause be ashamed. These are those who betray trust. They act deceitfully and violently. They intend to defeat or shame God's people. And therefore shame the God we serve. David in essence prays in verse 3. May it be apparent that you are Yahweh who keeps covenant with your people. And let the faithless be revealed by their acts of treachery. Let the evil ones, not your people, but the evil ones be put to shame. David also prays in Psalm 35 that shame would be turned upon his enemies. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress, let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me, over your anointed one of Israel, the king of Israel. You see, the covenant God is the Lord who delivers his people. And he's also the one who turns shame upon his enemies, the enemies of his chosen ones. Remember, God promised Abraham and his descendants, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. God always keeps his promises, his unconditional covenants. They're always fulfilled. Understand this psalm is a psalter about Yahweh, the God of deliverance the God of guidance, the God of forgiveness. It's about the mighty one in whom we have hope. And all that David prayed for in this psalm would be 
and has been fulfilled in the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope from A to Z. I want to say Z because of Canada. From A to Z, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the fulfillment of all God's promises. In him, all the promises of God are a resounding yes. In this new covenant age in which we live, Those who have trusted Christ are God's covenant people. We have been grafted into the very blessings of Abraham. We are children of Abraham through faith and therefore children of God. God is our deliverance. Christ is our God. He is our forgiveness. He is our satisfying sacrifice. He is our hope. You see, all of this is and was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The equivalent word for a shame in Psalm 25 in the Greek is kateskuno. It means to put to shame, dishonor, disgrace, disappoint. Primarily, it speaks of an unfulfilled hope. But the Apostle Paul declares both in Romans 9 and 10, he who believes in him will not be kateskuno, disappointed, disgraced, dishonored, put to shame. Both Peter and Paul quoted Isaiah 28:16, "Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone that we sang about earlier, and he who believes in him will not be catascuno, disappointed, disgraced, dishonored or put to shame. The word of God declares that hope, our hope in Christ will not go unfulfilled. God is a covenant God who keeps covenant with his people. And we see this so clearly in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and actually further. But we'll just look at verses 1 through 6, where Paul proclaims, Therefore, having been justified, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand And we boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not catascuno. It does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us for a while We were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You see, the Spirit of God that indwells us is the guarantee of future glorification. It's the guarantee of our hope. It is the guarantee of a complete salvation, even the redemption of the body. The Lord promises that a perfect, complete Salvation is realized in Jesus Christ, and he will not fail because God does not fail. He promises that God is using our afflictions, excuse me, to conform us into the likeness of Christ. We are being transformed. And I'll say this, because the Word of God says this, it doesn't matter how grievous the sins of our paths past are. It doesn't matter how much we've deviated from God's holy standard. It doesn't matter how great or numerous our enemies. It doesn't matter the struggles of this life. If we are in Christ, he is our hope. 
and we will not be put to shame. We will not be dishonored. God's people will not be disappointed. He will fulfill what he's promised because our hope is in the crucified, resurrected Lord of glory. He is our victory and he is sure. What a foundation, what a cornerstone that we stand upon this morning. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? He's talking about the promise of a complete and sure salvation, even glorification. And he says this, If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect or who will shame God's people? We could look at it like that. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, who will separate us from the love of Christ? With affliction, or turmoil, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And he quotes Psalm 44:22. He says, just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, all the promises of God are a resounding yes in Christ. He is our deliverance. He is our victory. He is our God. He is our forgiveness. And he never fails. You see, all the things that David is praying for in this whole psalm, not just, not just verses 1 through 3, but the whole psalm are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're fulfilled in him. He is our hope from A to Z. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In Him, we find help. In Him, we find deliverance. In Him, we find salvation. In Him, we find forgiveness for all the grievous sins that we have committed. The Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. And He is a sure hope. It's not a hope so. It's a sure hope. It will be fulfilled. So as we enter the visual proclamation of the gospel, we not only look back remembering the Lord's death, we look ahead into the day that we will partake with him in glory to the day in which all the promises of God are completely fulfilled. They're realized to the day that we'll be like him when we see him as he is. Communion is, first of all, a remembrance. So may we be reminded that he bore our sins, the sins of his people. 
that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And this is what gives us hope. Since God's justice has been satisfied for all those who believe, for all the elect, for all those who call upon the name of the Lord, the payment has been completed. It is finished. And so we rest and we hope in a complete salvation. A salvation in which even these bodies cursed by sin will be redeemed. The presence of sin will be gone. And we will see him as he is in glory. We will be like him. We will be glorified. Even the stain of sin is gone forever. And I remind you this morning that the unleavened bread represents the sinless body of Christ. He was without spot or blemish or any such thing. Yet, he was broken by the wrath of God bearing our sins, bearing my sin. He was scourged and spit upon. He wore a crown of thorns. He was beaten and whipped his hands and his feet bore nails of iron. He was pierced through for our transgressions, bringing us spiritual healing. People in this world are looking for physical healing. And one day in Christ, at the time of his return, we will be healed in every respect, even physically. But in Christ right now, we have a spiritual healing. As Isaiah prophesied, We have a spiritual healing. We have a salvation bringing God's people into his presence as his dear children. All to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. But we are blessed to receive a salvation for his glory. The wine represents the cleansing blood of Christ. And as I like to say, just as wine in Scripture represents celebration, blessing, and abundance, it also represents judgment, even the wrath of Almighty God. So the Lord Jesus Christ took our wrath. That's what the wine pictures. He took our wrath that we might have his blessing. For by the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sin. We have been brought into a a covenant relationship with God. His blood is the blood of the new and eternal covenant. (coughs) We've been brought into the blessings of Abraham. We are children of Abraham and therefore children of the everlasting Lord. As John declared in 1 John 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. As we prepare our hearts for communion, if you're not born from above, if you do not have peace with God through Jesus Christ, let it pass you by. Do do not partake. There's no shame in letting it pass you by. But this is what I would encourage you to do. Since Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, all men are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. 
I challenge you to repent and believe the gospel. As God's people remember his death by the power of God and the glory of the gospel, repent, turn from your sins, turn from indifference, turn from self-righteousness, admit that you have absolutely no righteousness of your own. Anything that you might claim as your own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags and then turn to Christ who is mighty to save. We see it in the psalm. We see it in verses 1 through 3. For all who call upon the name of the Lord, certainly in faith, will be saved. That's the promise of God. Look to Christ. Call upon Him. Trust in Him with all your heart, and He will save you. But if you are a child of God, you're certainly, doesn't matter whether you're visiting, if you're a child of God and you're walking in obedience with him, we encourage you to partake with us. But we are all, before partaking, to examine ourselves, confess any sins, consider our hearts, our purpose, our motive, so that we might partake in a worthy manner. For those who partake in a worthy manner are blessed in remembering I believe that we grow in grace and knowledge as we consider our own hearts and we rejoice and we worship the God of of salvation through communion. But those who partake in an unworthy manner without examining themselves will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It's a warning from God himself. So as we continue in worship, let us examine ourselves in a time of private silent prayer that we might partake in a worthy manner.